I think it's good if each day we read the verses that we covered the preceding day. So today, let's go read the Amish and then we'll read the first six verses. That will be our way of reviewing. Namo Mahakari Nikaya. The door to the path. Let's read together. The door to the path of the great being, the great shield of the Mahayana, the seed of great awakening, are prostrated with devotion to great compassion. The mother who gives birth to all victorious ones, the essential wealth of the conquered children, the anonymous benefactor of all beings, may I be protected by great compassion. Prostrating to the love encompasses making prostrations and offerings to all the victorious ones and their children. I praise great compassion. I praise you, great compassion, the unreliable wealth of the roots, the cause and condition rewarded with the progress, project of Buddhas, and the responsibility of the ones. I praise you, great compassion who are important as living by the sea, in the interim like water, and at the end like the fruit, in obtaining the excellent harvest of the victorious ones. I praise you, great compassion, whose dividing characteristic is the desire to protect all ages, mothers, and beings from the subtle and gross fears of existence and pacification. So regarding that last verse, I, I told you that it was related to one verse in Shanti Deva's text, I do what he suffers in his life. So I looked at looked at that verses and actually I found two of them. Um they're in chapter seven, verses twenty-eight and twenty-nine. Uh, so Shanti says, The body is well on account of merit and the mind is joyful on account of wisdom. What can affect a compassionate one who stays in the cycle of existence for the sake of others? Extinguishing previous vices and accumulating oceans of merit, owing to the powers of bodhicitta alone, one moves ahead of the shravakas. So, um, in talking about the Arya Bodhisattvas, says the body is a well is well on account of merit. So by having abandoned negative actions and accumulated so much positive potential, then uh, for the Arya Bodhisattva, their body is well. They don't experience a lot of physical pain. So why do we experience pain in our bodies? It's a result of our own negative actions. And the mind is joyful on account of wisdom. Okay, so when we generate wisdom in, our, in the mind, then we see the emptiness of inherent existence, and so then all the disturbing emotions subside because they're all founded on that ignorance. Okay, so if you want your body and mind to be happy, then you need what's called the two collections. The collections of positive potential, which makes the body well, and the collection of wisdom, which makes the mind joyful. And so it says, what can affect a compassionate one who stays in the cycle of existence for the sake of others? So the Arya Bodhisattvas were willing to stay in cyclic existence in samsara in order to benefit others, but they aren't uh, affected by physical pain and mental pain because of their two collections. And so relating back to our text here, that's why it's talking about um, protecting uh, having the desire to protect all aged mothers and human beings from the subtle and gross fears of existence and pacification. Okay, so this is talking about the fears of existence. Yeah, the fears of staying in cyclic existence. Okay, when we have accumulated positive potential and wisdom, then we no longer have that fear our minds being protected from it. Okay? And then the, the subsequent verse says extinguishing previous vices and accumulating the oceans of merit, 
owing to the power of Bodhicitta alone, one moves ahead of Vishwabhaka. Okay, so by the power of the altruistic intention of Bodhicitta, which is based on great compassion, which is forth from great compassion, then one um, surpasses the Shravakas, the hearers, who are attached to their own nirvana. Okay? And so that frees one from the fears of pacification. Remember, pacification means the self-complacent peace of nirvana for oneself alone. Okay? Let's just review in verse 6. We'll go on to verse 7 now. Okay, so it says, I praise the compassion that focuses on sentient beings, that sees them in their suffering aspect, overpowered by their ignorance, like a water wheel in the well of cyclic existence. So this um, verse, in this verse, uh, our author here, Lama Lozani Hayam, he's again referring to Chandrakirti's text, the, the supplement, Majjhimikavatara and he's referring to the next verse we covered some of the earlier verses in Majjhimikavatara yesterday and so now he's referring to verse 3 in Majjhimikavatara okay so and this, this, these initial verses in Majjhimikavatara and the supplement the, like I was saying yesterday they're really really famous verses that they study for weeks and months on end in the monasteries they're really really important and this particular verse and the next one that comes after it's discussing the three kinds of, of uh, compassion you know because Chandrakirti is paying homage to compassion with all his heart and so um, these verses are really talking about the different kinds of compassion and, and uh, what they're like and they're, they're really it's really quite beautiful and quite moving. Okay, so to read from uh, Chandrakirti, his uh, verse says, Homage to that compassion for migrators who are powerless like a bucket traveling in a well, through initially adhering to a self, an I, and then generating attachment for things. This is mine. I. Okay? So, and let me read you the next verse from Chandrakirti um, also. It says, Homage to the compassion for migrators seen as evanescent and empty of inherent existence, like a moon in rippling water. So these, these uh, two verses are talking about the three kinds of compassion. The first one is the compassion of uh, seeing sentient beings the second is the compassion observing phenomena and the third is the compassion observing the unapprehendable okay so the verse in our text here okay I praise that compassion that focuses on sentient beings that sees them in their suffering aspect overpowered by their ignorance like a water wheel in the well of cyclic existence so that's referring to the first type of compassion that Chandrakirti is praising, the compassion that views uh, migrators, okay, that sees uh, migrators as suffering. So why is it called the, the compassion observing sentient beings, or actually the compassion observing migrators? Uh, because sentient beings are migrators. We move around a lot. Okay, we go from one realm of existence to the other. Okay, we're born as a human being, we're born in the house, we're born in the devil realm, we're born as a hungry ghost, we're born as a demigod, we're born as an animal. We migrate from one realm of existence to the other under the influence of afflictions and karma. Okay, so that's why we're called migrators. So, uh, in this condition, Homage, uh, says, Homage to that compassion for migrators who are powerless like a bucket traveling in a well, through initially adhering to an I, a self, an I, and then generating attachment for things. This is mine. Okay, so here Chandrakirti is, is saying that migrators are 
in samsara, powerless, how they're going up and down and up and down, like a bucket in a well. So there's this analogy of a bucket in a well, and it can be really helpful in our, in our meditation to think of a bucket in a well. Okay? And what's it like to be a bucket in a well? Yeah? You go down really easily, don't you? It's difficult to come up. You get banged around a lot. When you're coming up, when you're going down, you're getting banged around a lot. Yeah, you're under the control of whoever it is who's pulling the pulley, you know? And you have no freedom of your own. You're just sitting there going up and down, banged around, uh, seemingly with no end result. Yeah, just continuously going through this. So there's six ways in which Chandrakirti, or maybe it was Lama Sankhata, who compared sentient beings migrating in the, in the realms of existence to a bucket. Okay, so just as a bucket is bound by a rope, okay, it's held by this rope, it doesn't have its own freedom, so sentient beings, migrators, are bound by the rope of afflictions and karma. So this is helpful to think about because we feel like independent sentient beings. Here am I, I have control. Nothing controls me. Ha ha ha. Okay? We feel like we have a lot of control, right? Did we have any control about taking this body? Did you have any control about being born? Do you have any control about getting sick? How about aging? Can you stop that? Or death? Yeah. Do you have control over not having problems? Do you have control over getting everything you want and of being happy even if you get it? And we have this incredible illusion of control. And yet, actually, what's in control of our whole situation? Okay. We're bound by the rope of afflictions and karma. We have very little freedom. Why are we born? Did you ever wonder as a kid why you were born? Did you ever wonder why you were born you and not born somebody else? Okay. Well, afflictions and karma explains it. Okay. How did we get born? Well, because there's this ignorance that grasps at inherent existence. We think there's an inherent existent body and mind. On the basis of that, there's an inherently existent person, me. Okay? There's inherently existent things that give me pleasure, that give me pain. All my emotions are inherently existent. Okay? So, due to all the craving and the fear and the animosity, you know, generated by trying to protect this I, this self that seems so vulnerable, then we create all these actions. Yeah, at the time of death, due to the craving and grasping that comes at the time of death, then some karma ripens, and whammo, you know, we're off into the next rebirth. Now, were we aware of this whole process before we were born, at the end of our last life? Were we aware of craving and grasping ripening when we were dying and of karma ripening? Were we aware of, you know, coming into a body and experiencing, you know, the development of a body with its sense organs? You know, it's really like we're automatons, isn't it? You know, we're just, you know, knocked around here and there, here and there. Now, it wasn't that we were sitting up on some cloud somewhere, you know, saying, I'm in control, I'm me, I'm choosing to have a rebirth, I'm taking interviews for mother and father, apply here. You know? I mean, come on. All of a sudden, you know, it was just by the force of this tremendous craving and grasping. We want an identity. You know, because we want an identity. What's the basis of our identity? This thing, this body, you know? 
So what do we want? We want a body. Well, we've got a body. Yeah, now what do we do with it? Okay, so our culture says body is beautiful, body is wonderful, body can give you so much pleasure. Is that true? Get some pleasure from your body, don't you? Is it guaranteed? No. Anybody here who's never had their body hurt? How about never had your body be sick? Yeah. We got the body, so we get a little bit of pleasure from it. But they say, be careful of what we want, you might get it. And we got it. You know? And here we are, we're stuck in this body that gets old and sick and dies, and we have no control. So somebody might say, well, I'll kill myself. Well, that doesn't do any good in Buddhism. You'll just get reborn. <laughs> yeah. I was talking, one of the inmates I write to, you know, he, uh, he was telling because he was so desperate, he was in so much uh, mental pain at one point in his life. You know, so confused. And he said he was thinking of killing himself, but when he encountered the Dharma and found out that you got reborn, then he realized no use killing yourself. You know, the only way out is to change the mind. Yeah. And he's done a lot of work and really changed. It's quite remarkable. Yeah, he's only 26, but he's really done some very serious good practice. Okay, but but look at us, you know, we're just kind of born in this body, we go through our life thinking that we're we're mean, thinking that we're in control. You know, we're just some kind of karmic bubble, some kind of thing that exists because of causes and conditions, something that was created by afflictions and karma. You know, we're just a created phenomena. When the causes for us stop, we stop. Okay? We're not in control of the whole thing. Yeah. So we're bound by this rope of afflictions and karma, just as a bucket is bound by its rope. Yeah, no freedom. So this, these afflictions and karma, those are the afflictive obstacles, the ones that we want to eliminate so that we can attain nirvana liberation you know be free of psychic existence okay the second way that sentient beings are like a bucket in the water okay the pulley propels the bucket okay and we uh, are propelled by our unsubdued mind so our life in, in cyclic existence Again, without control, it's propelled by the force of the unsubdued mind. So you have the unsubdued mind, eons of it. Yeah, this isn't some recent invention, you know. Eons of unsubdued mind pushing our, our cyclic existence forward in the same way that the pulley you know, propels the bucket. It makes the bucket go up and down, up and down. Our unsubdued mind makes us go up and down, up and down, up and down. Okay, the third way. So, um, the, the bucket goes up and down a lot. Okay, it goes to the bottom of the well and it splashes, goes to the top of the well, it goes in between, it's up and down and up and down. Okay? In the same way, sentient beings wander in cyclic existence, you know, from the lowest hell realms to the highest god realms, up and down, up and down. Okay? We, see, we feel like we're solid concrete people. Like I was saying, we are just composed conditioned phenomena. The causes for us cease, this life ends, we can become other things. We have been other things in previous lives. Okay, so by the force of being bound by the, the rope of afflictions and karma, you know, sometimes we've been born in states of incredible suffering and misery, sometimes by the force of uh, good karma, 
that is still created under ignorance, so it isn't uncontaminated karma, it's contaminated by ignorance, so it still ripens in the cycle of existence, but because it's good karma, then we're born in some super deluxe God realm where you have so much pleasure and so much bliss and it's really wonderful but that's conditioned also it's impermanent and transient also when the causes for that blissful rebirth end then kaplunk the bucket goes to the bottom of the well again and kaplunk we go down to a lower ground one of my teachers second year to say um, when he went to the Eiffel Tower you know that people in France are so proud of the Tabernacle to the Eiffel Tower okay. so they took him to the top of the Eiffel Tower and he said now that you're at the top the only way to go the only place to go is down so you know you're at the peak of Samsara in some kind of blissful God realm yeah, if you don't have the wisdom that takes you out of samsara completely, the only place to go is down. Okay. So sentient beings wander up and down. Then the fourth way is uh, that the bucket goes down very easily. Gravity just takes it. Um, but it's drawn up with great effort and difficulty. So in the same way, sentient beings easily get reborn in the lower realms and it takes great effort to have an upper rebirth. The Buddha said in one of the sutras that sentient beings uh, being born in an upper realm is the number of sentient beings who are born in an upper realm is like the, the, the dirt under a fingernail. You know, the, the, particles of dirt under the fingernail and the number of sentient beings put in the lower realm uh, is like all the grains of sand in the world yikes okay so but you can see it's easy to, to be reborn in a lower realm yeah think about the ten negative actions killing stealing unlike sexual behavior lying causing disharmony with our speech our speech out of gossip covetousness ill will wrong views yeah. I've done all ten anybody here? yeah very easy to do those ten isn't it? doesn't take a whole lot of thought yeah I mean harsh speech you know, you don't need to do a lot of preparation, you don't need to think and, you know, really struggle and plan it out and, you know, it just comes out so easily, doesn't it? You know, swearing at somebody, calling them names, insulting them, abusing them, no sweat, yeah? To comment on people's good qualities, to use our speech kindly, to point out what they've done well that really takes some effort doesn't it hmm? what about lying yeah that comes kind of easily fudging on the truth yeah exaggerating this and that covering up what we've said lying yeah again it's a, you know we don't need to think a whole lot beforehand it just comes yeah telling the truth Ooh. yeah it's a bit harder isn't it okay. what about using our speech to cause disharmony yeah talking behind other people's back is that easy or difficult pretty easy isn't it yeah it's kind of like our favorite pastime let's talk behind somebody else's back okay so we're in our office you know, let's talk behind the back of another colleague. Let's escape that colleague. Let's blame them for everything that's wrong in the office. Let's gang up on them. Okay? Or gossiping about our neighbors, about other family members. Yeah. It's so easy to criticize our parents, isn't it? You know, ever since 
for it. We can blame them for anything we want. We don't need to think too long about it. We'll just, you know, it's my parents' fault this, it's my parents' fault that. They didn't give me this, they didn't give me that. I'm screwed up because they did this and that. Yeah? How often do we talk about our parents' good qualities? Yeah? How often do we actually thank our parents specifically for what they've done for us in our life? Huh? You ever written your parents a thank you letter? Yeah, think about it. Did you ever thank them for beating you in the middle of the night? While you shrieked at the top of your lungs and woke them up from a sound sleep and they were sleep deprived for years? Did, did you ever think to thank, thank them for that? Yeah? Did we ever thank our parents for changing our diapers? How about for teaching us manners? When we think about it, yeah, we can see that, you know, so easy to point out people's faults and trash people behind their back, blame them for stuff. Much more difficult to really use our speech to create harmony and to bring people together. That really takes some effort, huh? Yeah. What about sleeping around with other people? Easy or difficult? Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah? That's real easy, isn't it? Oh, it's not a nice attractive person. Off into bed. You know? Do we ever think about the effects it has on the other person, or the effects it has on us, or the effects it has on family members? Okay. So, you know, when, when we look at how easy it is to create negative karma, you know, then it makes sense that it's easy to have a lower rebirth, and that it's, you know, much more difficult to have an upper rebirth. And, you know, it can be really helpful to, to do kind of a little life review and and think about the karma we've created. There's a story of one, one of the great Kadamba Geshis when he was meditating in a cave. Whenever he had a negative thought, he, he put one colored pebble in one pile. Whenever he had a positive thought, he put another co- colored pebble in another pile. At the beginning of his practice, the pile of negative thoughts was really enormous. You know, so many pebbles there and the ones of positive thoughts were were small then later as he began to practice more positive the negative pile of pebbles decreased and the positive pile of pebbles <laughs> okay but it's interesting you know just to look at our minds sometimes yeah and, and see what kind of thoughts we have where, where we go and to watch how we use our mouth. Mm. You know, this is the greatest weapon of mass destruction. Yeah. Our mouth. Isn't it? Yeah. Forget, you know, we might think killing somebody with a real bomb is harmful. What we do with our mouth is incredibly painful. Yeah. All these weapons with mouth. Mouth destruction. <laughs> that we draw out of our mouth, you know? How to harm sentient beings. Okay, so that fourth way that sentient beings are like a bucket, go down to the lower realms very easily by the force of negative karma, have a good rebirth with much more effort, much more difficulty. And you know, really imagine pulling a bucket up out of a well. Yeah, anybody ever pulled a bucket up out of a well? I wish those spoiled were used to turn them in a tap. Yeah, I did a, a retreat one time in Italy in a place, you know, that had no electricity and no running water. We had to pull the, the bucket up out of the well. Takes some effort, you know? Really takes some effort. So it's like that, you know, so much effort just to to get an upper reader. Yeah. Lower realms? Yeah? Like drop in the bucket. <laughs> Very easy. Okay, the fifth way sentient beings are like a bucket. In the well. Okay, the sentient beings have um, 
three sets of afflictions and we can't determine the order in which they come one-pointedly. They're all kind of jumbled up. And this is in the same way that we, we can't see, you know, which happened first, that the bucket went up, the bucket went down, you know, the bucket went sideways. It's not really clear what started the whole thing. So in sentient beings, that's the three sets of afflictions. Um, so this is talking very much about the, the 12 links. Okay, the, the teaching on the 12 links is from the Rice um, Seedling Sutra. And it talks about how we get born in cyclic existence. Okay, so it talks about one group of afflicted factors that are ignorance, craving, and grasping. Those are the afflictions. Another group of afflicted factors, which are actions. Those are the second link, second link kind of formations and becoming. And then the third group of afflicted factors, which are. Uh, you know, the consciousness taking rebirth, sense organs, feeling, um, you know, birth, aging and death, all these kinds of things. Okay? So, uh, I'm not going to go into an extensive dis- description of the 12 links now. It would be nice to do that at some other time. We can really get into it. But there's also, um, on the web, under the long room section there's teachings on the 12 links you can look it up there okay but it, you know these 12 links they're all that one set of 12 links and another they're all intertwined you don't really know what comes first what comes second okay it's the same way with the bucket going up and down you know where does it all stop start stop you don't really know then the sixth way um that sentient beings in samsara like a bucket in the way is that when the bucket's going up and down it's not just a smooth trip it's not you know easy up and easy down but rather when it's getting going up you know the bucket's getting banged around on the edges when it goes down it's getting banged around and so it's not a smooth transition it's really getting banged around a lot so similarly, sentient beings are battered by three types of suffering. So the three sufferings, this is the thing that's important to know. Um, the first suffering, and here actually I think instead of saying the three sufferings, it's better to say the three kinds of dukkha. I think let's use the Sanskrit and Pali word dukkha. It's much easier because suffering is, um, you know, the English word suffering just doesn't kind of give the right connotation. So actually the first one is the dukkha of pain. So this is what we would normally call suffering. It's the ouch kind of pain. So it could refer to physical or mental pain that everybody, even animals, recognizes painful. So dukkha means, you know, the unsatisfactory condition of pain. Yeah, that's one unsatisfactory condition that we have. Second unsatisfactory condition, the second type of dukkha, is the dukkha of change. Yeah. And this one's a little bit harder to recognize. Because what this means is that the dukkha of change is what we ordinarily call happiness in the world. Okay? So the happiness that we get is actually the unsatisfactory condition of change. Because any happiness we get doesn't last. And if we continue to use the thing that gave us the happiness, the happiness itself actually ceases and becomes pain. Okay? So they always give the example. Oh, a very good example. You're sitting right now, right? Yeah? Your knees start to hurt really bad. Like, let's say we keep on. I don't you know I don't stop and we just keep going and going and going and your knees hurt and your back hurt and you're just itching to get up when you finally stand up there's a sense of pleasure right from standing up because you're tired of sitting okay but if you can so initially we call standing up pleasure if standing up were really pleasure then the more we stood up the more pleasure we would have <laughs> What happens after you stand up for a while? 
how do you want to sit down? Okay? And so it just, you just settle, you know? When you sit down, when you sit down, then the suffering of standing has, has gone down and the suffering of sitting is really small. When the suffering of sitting gets really big, then you want to stand up. When you stand up, then the suffering of sitting is small, and the suffering, uh, I mean, the suffering of sitting is gone, but the temporarily, but the suffering of standing has begun. Okay. So today we're on precepts. So you might get hungry this evening. I want food, I want food, I want food. Food is happiness. I can't wait till tomorrow morning when I can eat. Okay? So you see, food is happiness. You're really hungry. So then you eat something tomorrow morning. Yeah? Now, so initially you feel some pleasure from eating. Right? Now, if eating were itself inherently pleasurable, the more you ate, the happier you should be. Now, what happens if you just keep eating? Yeah, stomach ache. Okay? So we can see that what we think is the source of pleasure, eating, is only a temporary relief from pain. It's not actual pleasure. Because the more you do it, then eventually it's going to turn into something painful. Okay? So if we look at any of the things that we consider pleasurable, we get some pleasure and happiness from them. But it didn't last very long, and if we continue to do that same thing that brought us pleasure, eventually it brings us pain. Hmm? You know, think about it. You know, the new job you want, the new house you want. Yeah, anything that you consider pleasure, eventually, if you do it more, it becomes painful and unsatisfactory, and you want to change from it. So what it's showing is that there's no real happiness within psychic existence. Yeah. But what we call happiness is actually just a small level of suffering. Okay, mm-hmm. so that's the second kind of dukkha that, that sentient beings are under the influence of or afflicted by. The third kind of dukkha is called pervasive compounded dukkha. And what this means is just simply having a body and mind under the influence of afflictions and karma. So at any moment or another, yeah, we are completely ripe and receptive for pain. Yeah? We can be in the middle of the greatest happiness and like that, wham, we can have pain. Can't we? I think some of these terrorist activities, they they really point that out to us. You know, you're on a bus going to work, yeah, dreaming about your boyfriend, dreaming about your wife, bam. Yeah. Why does that happen? Because we have a body and mind that are completely receptive to pain. They're not free or beyond pain. Why? Because they're in, under the influence of afflictions and karma. We can be in a perfectly delightful mood, feeling on top of the world. All it takes is two sentences from another person, and we're totally out of whack, angry, depressed, miserable. Sometimes not even two sentences, just one. Okay? Why? Because our mind completely under the influence of afflictions and karma. Yeah? No freedom there. No peace. Okay? So we're constantly afflicted by these these three types of dukkha. And so in that way, you know, things are like the bucket. Um, because you know, the bucket gets banged around us that goes up and down and sentient beings get banged around. You know, we get banged around as we go from one rebirth to the next in psychic existence. When we think really deeply about this in terms of our own condition, we generate what's called the determination to be free. Okay? Or in some cases that, that word is translated as renunciation. 
What we're renouncing is suffering and the causes of suffering. We're renouncing dukkha and its causes. Yeah, we're not renouncing happiness. We're trying to get happiness. But we're, we're fed up with the low-grade happiness in samsara and we're eager for high-grade happiness. Okay, the happiness of nirvana. So when we can clearly see uh, how we're under the control of afflictions and karma, how we're made miserable by the, the three kinds of dukkha, it gives rise to this determination to be free of samsara. This is what is compassion for ourselves. Okay? Lots of people say, don't we need to have compassion for ourselves? You bet we need to have compassion for ourselves. What is compassion for ourselves? It's the determination to get out of cyclic existence. We think compassion for ourselves is giving ourselves a hot bath and going to bed early. Okay, we think that's compassion for ourselves. Okay, when you get in the tub of the hot bath, initially it's pleasure. After you stay there for a while, does it continue to be pleasure? How long can you stay in a hot bath? Not very long, you know, because it gets cold. Or even if it doesn't get cold, after a while your skin's all wrinkled up. You're tired of sitting in that scrunched up bathtub. Now you want to get out and do something else. Okay. So we think compassion to ourselves is sitting in a hot tub, but you know it's just another form of the dukkha of uh, of change, isn't it? It's not real happiness. Okay, so so real compassion for ourselves is really taking care of ourselves, wanting ourselves to get out of cyclic existence. You know, and we do that because we really care about our own happiness. So don't think of, you know, determination to be free as, or renunciation as something that like, oh God, you know, I've got to renounce. This is so difficult. This is so painful. You know, I have to renounce. I have to determine to be free. Oh, what a drag. I don't really want to. But, you know, all these people in their own roads are telling me I should and I have to and I better get out of samsara or else, you know. But I don't really want to. Okay, that's how we think, isn't it? Yeah? We see our Dharma teachers, our enemy. We see them. All they do is tell me to get out of samsara, you know. Why can't they tell me something else that my ego wants to hear? Now it's telling me to determine to be free. I am free. <laughs> I'm defending freedom in Iraq. I'm free. You know? Okay. So, um, you know, but if we really understand compassion for ourselves, we'll see that all these teachings that our teachers give us about dukkha are completely given on compassion. Yeah? We hear all these teachings, you know, the six sufferings of samsara, the eight sufferings of the human realm, the three kinds of dukkha, the six root defilements, the twenty auxiliary defilements, yeah. The six causes for afflictions to arise. All we hear it is just so many lists of all these kinds of suffering. Yeah. We want to hear some nice dharma. You know, some kind of dharma that makes us happy. I don't want to be tired of suffering the causes of suffering. You know, I want light and love and bliss and hot bath. Yeah. Why can't my Dharma teacher do talk about something nice? Okay. But, you know, if we really think about it, by talking so much about suffering and the causes of suffering, these teachings are given out of incredible compassion. Because if we don't see that we're in prison, we're not going to have any wish to get out. Yeah. If we see prison as a pleasure grove, then, you know, we just hang out in the prison for a while. 
It's only when we actually recognize the downside of the situation that we're in that we actually try and get ourselves out. It's like when you're in a really screwed up, dysfunctional, abusive relationship. Anybody, anybody ever been in one of those? Yeah? Okay, when you're in the middle of a screwed up, dysfunctional, afflictive, abusive relationship, yeah, you think you're happy, don't you? Yeah? When it's going on, until you see the disadvantages of the relationship, you think there's some happiness in it. Yeah? You're trying to eke out some happiness. That's why you don't leave the person, because you're convinced that somewhere along the line there's some happiness. You're trying to eke it out. It's only when you get really honest with yourself and see what's going on that you say, why am I in this relationship to start with? You know, there's no happiness in this. It's totally screwed up. Yeah, I'm not making them happy. They're not making me happy. We're both creating a ton of negative karma. I think I need to do something different. Only when you see the faults of the abusive relationship do you try and get out of it. Yeah, When you're in the middle of it and still kind of thinking that there's some happiness to be found there, you stay. So it's the same thing with cyclic existence. We're kind of hanging out there. We still think that, you know, there's some happiness to be found in cyclic existence. Yeah, I know there's all these different kinds of suffering. But there's also some happiness. You know, there's chocolate cake. <laughs> you know, sure happiness. Mm-hmm. So we all have our own version of chocolate cake that we crave, that we salivate over. Give me my chocolate cake. If I get that, then I'm really going to be happy. Why get out of samsara when you can have your own version of chocolate cake? Okay? So we stay in it. And then we think that all these teachings about suffering are our enemy that are designed to make us miserable and depressed. As if the Buddha needed to teach us how to be miserable and depressed. You know? We're actually quite good at doing that by ourselves, aren't we? So do you see sometimes how confused we are? Yeah, this is coming clear a little bit. How tremendously confused we are. How we think that things that are actually suffering in nature are happiness. How we think that the people who are trying to help us are our worst enemies. How we think that the emotions that that cause us misery are actually the ones that that protect us and make us happy. And we're so befuddled. We're so out of touch with our own experience. We can't even tell our own experience in some kind of accurate way. So when we see, you know, we have to see this in terms of our own life and have compassion for ourselves and generate the determination to be free before we can have great compassion for all living beings. Because if we can't wish ourselves to be free, then how are we going to wish anybody else to be free? If we can't honestly understand our own samsara and its disadvantages, how in the world are we going to understand the samsara of others and with compassion want them to be free of it? So compassion for others is not some kind of icky gooey, oh you stubbed your toe, poor baby, you know, oh you didn't get the tootsie roll you wanted, poor sweetheart. You know, that's not compassion for others. Compassion for others really sees what the situation of cyclic existence is. How we're completely overwhelmed by afflictions and karma. Completely unfree. Completely confused. Okay? So we can't see that in others and really have compassion wanting them to be free unless we can face it in ourselves. Yeah? Okay? So 
So that's why, you know, when we talk about the order of realizations of things on the path, first we have to generate the determination to be free. Then we generate the bodhicitta. Okay? So this is really important to understand. Otherwise, we get so many mixed up, confused ideas about compassion and bodhicitta. You know, that's when we get into, oh, compassion, I'm so compassionate for others, but then we feel guilty ourselves, or we hate ourselves. And those two things don't go together. You know, you can't really hate yourself and have genuine compassion for others. Yeah? Okay? Because first we have to have real compassion for ourselves, wanting ourselves to get out of samsara. Then we see the exact same situation occurring for other living beings and we want them to get out. Okay? That's bodhicitta. That's where great compassion comes in. Okay? So, you know, in America, we like all the bodhicitta meditations. You know, I want to meditate on love and compassion. Now it's so nice, I love everybody. I'm Chenrezi, I sent out light. Oh, it's all these You know, kind of our feel-good meditation. But we don't like meditating on suffering at all, do we? Yeah? Meditating on suffering. Six kinds of suffering. Everything's impermanent. I don't want to think about that. Everything's unsatisfactory. I want to think about that either. Yeah? You get born and die over and over again. Cross that one out. (laughs) (laughs) Your status changes repeatedly. Nope. Get that out of my mind. You know, I live alone, I die alone. Ugh, that's the worst one. I don't want to think about that one either. You know, that's where we think, isn't it? But we have to see those in our own experience. Now, before we can have genuine compassion for ourselves and before we can have genuine compassion for others. So we should be requesting the teachings on suffering all the time. Yeah. I sometimes tell people the, the story of Lama Zopa, you know, the Kopan course way back in the 70s. Uh, you know, when we would take the Eight Mahayana precepts like we did this morning, we would take those uh, every morning for, for uh, two weeks. Okay? And so you had to get up really early and get out of your sleeping bag which was really suffering because it was cold. And you, then you go to the tent. It's a straw tent. Yeah, that's, that's straw. And straw, straw uh, sides. Um, no, maybe it was a lunar roof. I can't remember. You know, so the heat all pounds in. Anyway, there were fleas. Okay? So you're sitting there in the morning and it's cold and it's dark and the fleas are crawling all over you and all you think is bliss is that cup of soybean coffee that you're going to get as soon as Rimitra stops talking. (laughs) (laughs) You're convinced that that is the highest bliss ever to be had. And then, you know, remember how we kneeled down this morning? That really uncomfortable position? Remember how uncomfortable that is? Okay, so you're in that position like that, and you're ready for Rinpoche you know, say those verses three times, you know, and you're trying to repeat them out after him in Tibetan, you know. I mean, forget English, you're doing it in Tibetan. And then Rinpoche thinks of something else he wants to teach you. <laughs> So you're sitting there, you know, crouched down, yeah, visualizing the Buddha with a cup of soybean coffee <laughs> in a lake of soybean coffee. And then Rinpoche starts telling you about suffering. <laughs> you know, and there's the dukkha of pain, and there's the dukkha of change, and there's pervasive uncompounded dukkha. And you're sitting there going, yeah, I really know about this. I now can please get this terrible <laughs> I'm tired of hearing about suffering. I just want soybean coffee. Um, you know, and he just 
just talks. He just keeps talking. And you're sitting there balanced on your two feet. You know, I think that's why they made that position because it's so uncomfortable that you can't fall asleep. <laughs> you know, otherwise we'd all fall asleep. It's so early in the morning taking precepts, isn't it? You know, you'd all go. But you're in this uncomfortable position, so you stay awake. And he's talking about suffering. And more suffering. And more suffering. And more suffering. And the sun's coming up. And you're going, remember, we're supposed to take the precepts before the sun comes up. And he's talking about more suffering. And then finally, you know, you, you take the precepts. And then he dedicates. <laughs> For an hour and a half. <laughs> um, no, I'm exaggerating. In those days, he didn't dedicate quite as long as he dedicates now. But, you know, so, so we see all this as like, you know, so much suffering, having to listen to this every morning for two weeks. Yeah, can you imagine? Well, after a number of years of, you know, hearing this and contemplating this and, and uh, really going back and thinking about these different kinds of dukkha over and over again, I really come to appreciate Rinpoche for teaching all of this. Yeah? And in fact, I actually went and thanked him. Yeah? Because it, it's really, and you know, out of incredible compassion that somebody will actually tell you frankly about the situation of your life. Yeah? How many people tell us frankly about our situation? Yeah? It's not conducive for having a lot of students. <laughs> and without a lot of students, you don't get a lot of offerings. You know? But if you're really compassionate, what do you do? You teach what's real. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm saying about, you know, the true friend who cares about us and the false friend who just tells us whatever feels good. Yeah. Oh, don't go to these Buddhist teachings all about suffering. Buddhism is pessimistic. Yeah. I have this great guru. His name is Charlatananda. <laughs> Come to Guru Charlatananda. He will teach you the true path to this. And we go. Okay? Anyway, just something to think about. Okay. Back to our text here. I praise the compassion that focuses on sentient beings, that sees them in their suffering aspect, overpowered by their ignorance, like a water wheel in the well of suffering existence. Does that have a different meaning for you now? Yeah. Pretty strong words, isn't it? Pretty powerful. There are actually two other lines in Chandrakirti's text that I, that I didn't talk about. His first two lines were homage to that compassion for migrators who are powerless like a bucket traveling in a well. So that's what we just did, those first two lines. Then the second two lines of verse 3 in Chandrakirti, through initially adhering to a self, an I, and then generating attachment for things, this is mine. Okay? So what it's talking about is the evolution of our suffering. Actually, first we we have uh, grasping at the inherent existence of phenomena. Okay, so the ignorance thinking that the body is inherently existent and the mind is inherently existent. Okay, so it's the ignorance that's grasping the true existence of phenomena. On the basis of thinking that our body and mind are truly existent. Then we think that the I that it exists by being merely imputed independence upon the body and mind, we think that imputedly existent I is an inherently existent, truly existent one. Okay, and so that's uh, that's what we call jinta. That's the Tibetan word. It's um, uh, wrong view of upper perishing aggregates. Yeah. So that's what it means by initially adhering to an I. 
that initial adherence to the eye? Is that mental factor of the wrong view of the perishing aggregate? When we take the body on the basis of grasping at the body and mind is inherently existent, we impute an I and then grasp that that I is inherently existent. Okay. And then after that, we generate attachment for things. This is mine. Okay. So this mental factor, you know, the wrong view of, of the uh, perishing body and mind, it's the grasping at an inherently existent I and an inherently existent mind. So it's the I is the agent. I do this, I do that. And it's mine. Here, not referring to mine so much as the things that we possess, but to the person that is the owner. Okay? So when we say this is mine, we feel like there's this real, substantially existent person that owns everything. Don't we? This is mine. Mine. And we put the mine inside for things. This is my body. Not your body. My body. Mine. So there's this grasping at an I who is the owner. Yeah, so that's what Chandrakirti is talking about here. So we grasp at I, we grasp at mind, and we also grasp at all phenomena, body and mind, as having their own independent entities. Okay. And that's the source, that's the root of cyclic existence. Yeah. That's the aim number one enemy. Not Saddam Hussein. Yeah. The self-grasping ignorance is the big enemy. And that's the one we have to turn our guns of wisdom and compassion on. Okay. So we did one verse. <laughs> but I think there's a lot of meaning in this one verse, don't you? Yeah. So really think about it, you know, especially these six ways that sentient beings are like a bucket in a well. Really think about that analogy. Think about yourself as being like a bucket in a well, you know. You're the bucket in the well of samsara going up and down, being gathered and knocked around, you know. Really think about that. Then generate some compassion for yourself, wanting yourself to be free of misery. Then think about other sentient beings being in that same situation and develop great compassion for them. Okay. So this is, you know, uh, in the times of your silent meditation during the retreat, you know, consider this, contemplate it, put it into practice. Okay. And when, you know, you're walking around, when you see insects, when you see other people, Think about them in this light. You know, think, oh, they're like the bucket in the well. They're getting battered around, knocked around in cyclic existence. So instead of looking at, oh, there's a mosquito, get it away, I don't like it. Oh, there's a sentient being. Wow, you took rebirth in a mosquito body? You know, what kind of karma makes you take rebirth in that body? What's that mosquito's experience like? You know, that mosquito was from one rebirth for another, my mother. Yeah. My mother died and got reborn in this kind of body where everybody just doesn't like it, can't stand to see it. It's going to die. This mosquito's going to die really soon anyway, and it still lasts long. Yeah. Everybody just likes it, and it's totally confused. It has no freedom. This is some sentient being with a Buddha dead nature. And look at this look at the situation it's in. No? Think about that around a mosquito. It completely transforms the experience of seeing a mosquito. Think that way about your boss. Or think that way about somebody you don't like. Yeah. Take out in your meditation, take out somebody that you don't like and think about them as being like a bucket in the well of samsara. Yeah. 
under the you know down by the road with afflictions and karma going up and down unceasingly getting knocked around yeah, under the control of the pulley of the unsubdued mind see if you can still hate that person if you think about them that way it becomes really difficult to, to dislike somebody when you think about their situation of being in samsara yeah, we can't hold on to this just to dislike the animosity for very long we just look at the situation there and then like wow I wouldn't wish that on anybody. Yeah. 